If you've ever taken time to think about the kingdom of God, of which not only the prophets in the Old Testament proclaimed, but John the baptizer, as we've seen, and Jesus himself announced, the words they used were, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But if you think specifically about what the gospel narratives say, what the kingdom of God looks like, it is in sheer contrast to the kingdom of this world. Listen, the kingdom of this world is money, power, and fame. And the kingdom of God is satisfaction in God, humility, and faithfulness no matter who sees. But think about the gospel specifically. It is the good news that God sent Jesus to live, die, and rise for sinners. Now think about what do we have to offer God? The thing that he hates the most, which is sin. We are given faith to believe at salvation. We repent, which means to turn our back on our old life, which repentance is given to us by God's grace. And we are made God's children to live in the kingdom forever. There's nothing else like this in any power structure. The kingdom of this world is work hard and we might give you a spot in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is you can't work hard enough. You can never earn a place so someone else did it for you. That's the best news you'll hear all day. I want to read out of Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. This is called the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, this is not what you hear the world preach. In fact, it is the complete opposite. Listen, I'm going to step on some toes, including mine this morning. The American dream is in complete opposition to the kingdom of God. And don't hear me being negative about America. I love being American, and I'm thankful for those who risked their lives and even paid the ultimate price so that I can be free. But I know where my allegiance lies. My allegiance lies in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of America. The American dream is work hard so you can have your piece of the pie and retire with a neatly trimmed yard, a white picket fence to keep your neighbor out, and maybe enough left over to buy a boat. The kingdom of God is as the old hymn, Rock of Ages, verse 3 says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let me give a disclaimer. 
to love America, to retire, and to have stuff, or even a white picket fence, is not a sin. But my job is, as a preacher is to warn you away from the kingdom our hearts most desire, our own. So here's some questions. What will we give our lives to? Will we live with open hands as we recognize that every good and perfect gift is from above? Here's the last question. What kingdom matters most to you? So I want to give a quick review and then point us to where we're headed as we're in, still in part two of the gospel of Mark, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. So we need constant reminders of who Jesus is and why he came to live 2,000 years ago on planet Earth. Think about the very way he invaded time and space was through a young girl, Mary, his mother, in Nazareth, who had very little and a very tumultuous time in the life of the Jews who were under Roman rule. He was not born in a palace with servants surrounding him, but out behind an inn surrounded by barnyard animals, wrapped in dead man's linens in a feeding trough. He grew in wisdom and stature. He was baptized by John, approved of by the heavenly Father, and anointed by the Holy Spirit. He traveled with 12 men that he called. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He liberated the captives, and he preached repentance. He foretold future events in the life of his people, those he redeemed, and he called from darkness to light. So, this is where we're headed. The next few chapters will be, if not already, intense. To try and describe the agony Christ experienced in the last few hours of his earthly life cannot be found in any lexicon or any physician's mind. This is the Christ, the anticipated one, the one whom the Old Testament foretold as the serpent killer and the New Testament explains as the sin bearer. Look to him, church, the son of God, son of man, certain of what he must do and willing to shoulder it all in your place and in mine. So open, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. It says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So last week, we had an in-depth view of Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and what he endured as his deity and humanity were on display as he cried out to his father the tension of the overwhelming sorrow he felt 
and also the desire to go willingly to the cross in obedience and fulfillment of the scriptures. So as he comes, we saw this last week, as he comes to his snoozing inner three for the, for the third time, he awakes them and he tells them that the hour has come and he could surely hear the footsteps of his betrayer and the mob marching behind him. So let's look at verses 43 through 50. Again, in a very Markan fashion, we've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark, he transitions us to a confrontation as he says, and immediately, that's a word we've seen over and over in Mark, and immediately while he, Jesus, was still speaking. So this means Jesus was in the middle of speaking to Peter, James, and John, and is interrupted by Judas and the crowd coming to seize him, coming to arrest him and take him away. But it's good for us to pause here and to look at something that Mark did not leave out in verse 43. It says, look at verse 43. It says, one of the 12. One of the men Jesus had called to follow him is now the one betraying him into the hands of the religious leaders who have been waiting anxiously to silence him. Judas betrayed Jesus in a very specific way and was used by Satan to, in the end, fulfill the prophecies about Jesus and what would take place before his murder. But I want to press a little further as we think about what Mark is talking about in verse 43. Do we see our own sin as a betrayal? Sin, listen, sin either in omission or commission, thought, word, and deed, is like the late R.C. Sproul said, cosmic betrayal. We put the desires of our flesh before our allegiance to Christ. Listen, anytime we sin, it is a betrayal of the Son of God. Dr. John MacArthur says this, he says, I fear there are multitudes like Judas in the contemporary church. So he's speaking about us. They are friendly to Jesus. They look and talk like disciples, but they are not committed to him. And therefore, they are capable of the worst kind of betrayal. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Listen, if you're a note taker, you're gonna wanna note this. 30 pieces of silver in that day was what you paid to buy a slave. 30 pieces of silver. So to put things in perspective for us, do we not betray Christ for much less? A moment of pleasure? A second of ecstasy? We trade for what we know about Christ, that in him we are satisfied. If it's easy, if it's become easy, and there is no regard for the holiness of God in your life, my ask for you is to repent. If you just, if you can sin and it doesn't even bother you, my first question is, are you a Christian? Because anytime a Christian sins, it should grieve them. And I'm not talking about worldly sorrow, which Paul talks about in the New Testament. I'm talking about godly sorrow. Are we grieved to the fact that we don't want to sin anymore? That we want to turn our back on that sin? 
Or has it become easy for us? Has it just become second nature again? That we have no regard for the holiness of God. Listen, I'm going to go on a tangent for just a second. This is not even in my notes, so bear with me. I'm going to speak just specifically about the American church. I believe that the American church has very little reverence for the holiness of God. Hebrews, and we're talking about the New Testament here. Hebrews describes God as a consuming fire. That we should be fearful to fall into the hands of Almighty God. Listen, I want us to see the contrast here that sin should grieve us, that we should not want to sin anymore. And I understand we can't be perfect. I cannot be perfect until I see him face to face, until he glorifies me. But on this process that I'm in, in sanctification, there should be a desire to live a holy life. That's what the gospel should create in us. That's what the holiness of God should create in us. Listen, if you're living in dark places, in secretive places, repent. Because time is short. You could leave this place and never see your family again. God forbid that happened to any of us here. Repent. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Men, Look at me. If you are dabbling in things and you are married or not, if you are dabbling things in secret, repent. Come to the light. Come to Christ. Cast your burdens on him. Cast your sin on him, for he is the one who bears it. Repent. But still in verse 43, it says that Judas and the crowd, they came with swords and clubs. But notice this as we move forward. I I want you to make a note that they came with clubs and swords. And and I'm I'm alluding to the end of our sermon here. So just make a note of that, that they came with clubs and swords. Let's go to verse 44. How Mark calls Judas the betrayer and no longer calls him Judas, one of the twelve. He continues that he had been, that he had given the crowd or the mob a sign that one, the one whom he kisses will be the one that needs to be arrested. So Judas does. He carries out the greatest act of betrayal ever in history. The text says that Judas calls out to him a term of endearment. He says, Rabbi, or beloved teacher who taught me all that I know. And then he goes to Jesus and he kisses him. The word kissed here, when you see it, is there's further meaning in the Greek. It's a prolonged kiss on the cheek, one of honor, how you would honor someone. But really what it is, is a show. So the betrayer calls out to Jesus and his endeared teacher and then comes to him and he kisses him on the cheek showing him honor, but on the, and that's all on the surface. Yet, with hatred in his heart, he hands Jesus over to those who wanted to see his demise. And the passage goes on to say that they laid hands on him and seized him, meaning they did so forcefully. But an impulsive disciple, who we know is Peter, 
from the parallel passage in John 18, he takes matters into his own hands. Look at John 18, if you would. If you want to turn there, if not, you can follow along on the screen. John chapter 18, verses 10 through 11. Here John describes what happens. It says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? But Jesus responds with such truth that it would, have been ha- it would have been hard to deny that they have come to capture him as they would a criminal with swords and clubs, ready to beat him and kill him. And, and yet he was with them day after day in the temple teaching and they did not arrest him. Simply. They still didn't have a good reason to do what they were doing. But listen, they were going to do it anyway. They were going to take Jesus by force. Look at the last half of verse 49 and into verse 50. What had just been done is according to Scripture, Jesus says it himself, or so the Scriptures could be fulfilled. And then verse 50 comes along like a right hook that just as Zechariah in the Old Testament predicted, the sheep scatter. His disciples abandon him under the threat of death. Jesus is left for dead. Even by the one, Peter, who said that, Lord, even if I have to die, I will not leave you. Peter scampers off with the rest. The text says they all left him and fled. Turn back to the text there in Mark. Mark 14. Look at verse 51. It says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What a strange and obscure element to this story. What does it add? Listen, what does it add to push the narrative forward? And why would Mark include this? That's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. Mark does this often. We've seen him do this often in his, in his gospel, where he sandwiches quick moments in the narrative between larger portions and he calls this, the, the scholars calls, call this an inclusio. If you're a note taker, you can note that. You can impress your friends. This is called an inclusio. We've seen him do it several times throughout his gospel. And scholars mostly agree, specifically in this inclusio, that this young man could have been, they assume, it could have been Mark including himself in the story, but not in the best light. It seems that he could have been part of the family where Jesus and the disciples had the Last Supper in the upper room of his house and heard, he heard the commotion when Jesus was being arrested and he grabbed nothing but his bedsheet to wrap himself in and came to see what was happening. The text says that he also followed, but the guards grabbed him, and somehow he got away, leaving this linen cloth, his bed sheets, behind as he also deserted Jesus. Listen, even at the shame of his own nakedness, he left and deserted the Christ. But the question goes deeper for us. 
Would you include yourself in the story this way? As a naked deserter of the Son of God? Probably not. We wouldn't want to be seen forever, for the rest of time, this way. But let's include this, this sandwich uh, portion, this inclusio, within where we've been today. Listen, it begins with a betrayer, Judas, mob in tow, with clubs and swords, interrupting Jesus, speaking to his inner three in the garden where he prayed. The apostate, this apostate Judas, calls out to his former rabbi, and then with a prolonged kiss of death, he hands him over to be taken by force. The tension is at a fever pitch as under the threat of death, his cherished disciples desert him. They leave him in the throes of impending death, as does this young man, who when almost caught, flees naked in search of a fig tree, of a fig leaf to cover his embarrassment. So this is where the gospel meets us. In that garden, put under the test that Jesus passed where Adam and Eve failed in a garden long ago. Christ is arrested with clubs and swords with which he would later be beat and he would also fall under the divine sword that kept Adam and Eve out of the garden where they shared fellowship with God. Taken by force as his sheep scatter to later be stripped of his clothes, bearing our shame, naked on that wretched cross. But he did not flee. He lived, he died, and he rose willingly in your place and in mine. This is the Christ, the one worthy of worship, honor, and glory exalted as the Son of God, stricken as the man of sorrows, now in chains, but would later free us from ours. Now abandoned and rejected so we could be accepted. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, confounding to the world, confusing to those who are wise in their own eyes, but a king who is about to ascend to his throne in the ultimate act of love. Listen, look to him and live. Look to this Christ and live. Colossians in the New Testament, Colossians chapter one. This is one I hope that sounds familiar to you as I read it. If not, Highlight it, underline it, circle it, whatever you have to do, memorize it. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And listen how personal this gets. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the Christ, the one who is about to ascend the hill of Calvary, who will be left alone and rejected, who will be nailed to this wretched cross in your place and in mine, and there hang for about six hours until he dies in your place and in mine. This is the Christ, the one who in his ultimate act of love ascends his throne, opposite of the kingdom of this world, and there he hangs, the man of sorrows, son of God, son of man. My question is this morning, Will you trust him? Will you trust this one who was betrayed into the, the ones who wanted to see him silenced? Will you trust the Passover lamb? Will you trust the one who was stripped, beaten, spit on? All these things that happened to him that the, the gospels describe, will you trust him? The one who didn't flee and leave us alone but there bearing our shame, bearing our sin, died so that we could have life, was rejected so that we could be accepted. Will you trust him today? And go ahead and invite the band to come up. Want to invite us into this. Whether you're here this morning and you're like, I, I honestly, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I want to invite you into this. Or if you're here this morning you're, and you're like, Ricky, I've been a Christian for years, the invitation still stands. Listen, the first invitation is this. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted Christ, listen, Christ fell under the divine sword of the Father so that you would not have to. But listen, if you reject Christ, you will have to fall under the divine sword one day. You will have to pay. And the only payment you can bring is death forever. To pay under the almighty wrath of God for eternity. So why not trust him today? Because he fell under that divine sword he was beat by those clubs so that you and I would not have to endure that. Trust him today. Repent of your sin. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and live. And if you are in Christ this morning, you say, Ricky, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm just having a hard time trusting him. My question is to you, do we see our sin as a betrayal and as a deserting of the Son of God? Maybe it's become second nature to you and you just, you can sin and it's not even an issue, issue to you anymore. My ask is this morning, repent. 
that God has given us the gift of repentance. Just that fact, church, should blow us away. That a holy and infinite God who does not need us or does not need our repentance has given us repentance as a gift. Repent. Repent. Turn your back on that sin. Come and live in the light where you find life. Come and find satisfaction in the one who was rejected so that you could be accepted. Trust him today. I'll be in the back of the room. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you've got a question that I could answer in the time being, I'd love to do that. But we're gonna sing one song and then I'm gonna come back up and we're gonna come to the Lord's table in communion. And this is, listen, Christian, if you're gonna take communion this morning, this is where we need to deal with our sin. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have with your spouse. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have with a family member. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have with your pastor and say, I've been hiding. And I can't take communion until I deal with this sin. Let's pray.